John chapter 3. Now, I want to give you fair warning. They are taking, uh, there's a poll on Facebook because Carmen posted a picture of me and my 15 books that I had studying John chapter 3. Okay, I had about 15 books on my table at home studying John chapter 3. And there's a poll on how many weeks they think it's going to take us to get through there, okay? And so far, uh, Becca said five weeks. Uh, Shelly, I think, said 22 weeks. 20 or less, okay? Somebody said 20. I knew that, right? I think Kyle said 20, right? You said 15, okay? Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take. There's a lot of stuff in John 3, okay? John 3 is a very interesting chapter because it deals with what we call the born-again experience, amen? Salvation. How many of you know that's a pretty important topic, right? It's all right that we talk about that and dissect that a little bit, ain't it? It's all right that we, we build our soteriology. If you don't know what soteriology is, that just means the doctrine of salvation or the study of salvation, amen? That's what that means. So we're going to talk about this today, and we're going to really dissect some of this. But before we do, we're going to go ahead and read the chapter and get our head started. Amen. How many know it's better just to read it, right? Go ahead. Wait. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody. Come on, Kyle. Hey, no, no, no. I appreciate Kyle. Hey, man. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you for reminding me. You know, Kyle, it was such a blessing to me to be able to go down to Alabama and not have to worry about church service and who's going to preach and who's going to handle this and who's going to do that. It's really a blessing to have Kyle and his wife Becca here. And we really do appreciate you guys. We really, really do. Amen. And it's nice to have somebody else to argue with Mike with. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to be in John 3, and we're going to just read. Uh, I think we're just going to read. I don't know. Let's, let's just read till verse 15, okay? I don't think we have to go much farther than that today, okay? I don't know that I'm going to get farther than verse 3, but we're going to read anyway, okay? Verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For what, no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you not the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would consecrate our hearts and minds, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that would receive this message today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have an eternal focus, that our lives would not be focused on just the here and the now and the physical things that we see, but that our hearts and minds would be focused on eternity and on you whom we cannot see. God, I pray that you would supernaturally open the eyes of those who do not believe, that they would come to faith in Christ, and that those of us who do believe, God, would be built up in our faith by what we read here today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to start the message today, I'm going to give you about six, seven points here that I see in this chapter. And we didn't even read it all, so I'm going to bring up some topics that we didn't even read yet because we didn't get that far, okay? But these are, I'm giving you a preview kind of of the third chapter of John. So the third chapter of John, we plainly see several things in the text. We see a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, come to speak to Christ. Christ speaking of the need of man and indeed of every man to be born again. We also see this. Number three, we see the confusion of the man about this mystery of being born again. How many of you realize that it's a mystery to be born again? Here's the mystery. Here's the thing that we don't understand. You get what you don't deserve. And Christ got what he didn't deserve so that you could get what you don't deserve. Amen? That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ came to this earth, died a sinner's death on a cross, even though he lived a perfectly holy life. So when God looks at the cross, he does not see Christ. He sees you and your sin. That's why Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless I live. Amen? Christ died a sinner's death on a cross so that when God the Father looked down from heaven and Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God sees you. 
sees your sin, sees my sin. But when he looks at you, he sees his son and the righteousness of his son who lived a perfectly holy life. This is a mystery because we don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. Most of us, if we say, if we say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll help you if, right? I'll help you, but, amen? The mystery of the gospel is God says, wake up, I'm helping you. Now I'm changing you. Here you go. Because none of us were on our way looking for God when we saw the light. We were groping about in utter darkness. And then all of a sudden, there was light. Amen. The creation of the world is so similar to the creation of a brand new born again believer in Christ. That it's absolutely unfathomable to me that people think they do this themselves. <laughs> in the beginning... God said, let there be light. And it happens in every one of our life. In the beginning of Kevin, there was nothingness. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was lost and undone. I was in darkness without God, didn't want God, was an enemy of God. And all of a sudden, God said, wake up. And man became a living soul. That's the born again experience. That's the mystery. This is what we see here. And we see Nicodemus is totally confused by this mystery. And he says some stupid things like we say all the time, right? Like, how can a man be born again? Is he going to go into his mother's womb a second time? How, what kind of ridiculous nonsense is he thinking in his head, okay? He didn't get it. Why? Because those who are not born again don't understand the gospel. And they can't. Come on. Yeah, get you a microphone. You can preach this with me. <laughs> John, uh, okay, number four, the fourth thing that I see here. I also see laid out in this chapter the love of God. Here we have one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? What we see here is the love of God and the purpose of God. I want you to note that the love of God was tied to the purpose of God because the love of God is stated in John 3.16, but the purpose of God is stated in John 3.17. And John 3.17 is one that you probably ought to memorize too. And it goes a little something like this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that his, but the world through him might be saved. Amen? Now, we also have to qualify this which Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say the whole world's going to get saved, does he? Because a lot of people will try to teach that from John 3, 17. But the reality is if you read 18, 
which I'm going to do. I'm going to read 18 just so you guys can know why I'm saying this right now. This is something. These are just. This is just a preview. I ain't even started the message yet. Okay. This is just a preview. Verse 18 says this: Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus qualifies this so we can qualify it with verse 18 that not everybody's going to be saved and there's a condition and it's called belief. It's called faith. Amen. 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 Matter of fact, if you read the book of Revelations, you realize very quickly that not everybody's going to heaven. And a matter of fact, Jesus in his own words said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction and many there be that find it. Amen. So we see here laid out for us the very love of God, the very purpose of the Son of God in condescending to put on flesh and to save those who would believe. Now, so many times people, when they hear pastors use the word condescending, they think of the first meaning of what it means to be condescending. The first meaning of condescending means to be uh, rude or to think highly of yourself and look down on other people or speaking in a condescending way, right? But that's not what the word means in theology. When we're talking about Christ condescending, we have to go to Merriam-Webster's second definition because there's two definitions for this word, okay? If you go look up the word condescending in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the first one says a patronizing attitude or behavior. The second one is the one that we're talking about when we talk about Christ condescending from heaven to come down and put on flesh as a man. The second one says a voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relation to an inferior. And that's what Jesus did when he became flesh. The Bible says that he took on the form of sinful man, right? That he became like us, acquainted with our griefs, Isaiah said. Amen? Why? Because God was the only one who could save man, but God had to do it as a man to pay the price for men. Amen? So when we talk about Jesus condescending to men, what we're saying is he voluntarily left his deity and dignity. Not that he ceased being God, not that he ceased being deity, but that he took upon himself flesh. Wasn't subtraction, it was addition. Jesus didn't just totally quit being God and then become totally a man. Was he totally a man? Yes. Was he totally God? Yes. And he had to be both or it wouldn't work. This is uh, the highest form of algebra that I still don't understand, okay? Because I stink at math and I'm terrible at algebra, but I got this one. Got this one formula down, okay? One and one equals salvation. Amen. God put on flesh and saved me. That's my algebra for today, okay? First time you ever even heard me use algebra from the pulpit, and it was probably not a good example. 
<laughs> Number five, we also see the promise of redemption and a promise of certain judgment. Amen. Those who believe are not condemned. Those who don't believe are condemned already. See, this is the big problem, and Kyle and I talk about this often, and we get into lots of conversations because when you believe that God is absolutely sovereign, even over salvation, when God says, "Whom I, who, I will harden whom I harden, I will, I will uh, bless who I'll bless, and when he says, I'll, I have people who are elect, when the Bible says uh, Jesus speaking, he said, no one can come to the Son except the Father draws him. What we're saying is there's an election. So people go, well, that means God's choosing other people to go to hell. No, every one of us stands condemned right now outside of faith in Christ. God does not have to do anything special for people to go to hell. They're already headed there of their own accord. But he does have to do something special to save people. <laughs> Amen? The problem is we were all sinful. When Adam sinned, we all fell. And we walk, we've been going through the book of Genesis on Sunday night and Wednesday night. And we're, we're witnessing over and over and over the depravity of man. You realize from the time of Cain killing Abel, you got one little chapter that gives you a genealogy. And then by chapter 6, God is so fed up. With the sinfulness of man, he's ready to send a worldwide flood to kill them all. And that's the same God that we would face had it not been for Christ. Because I don't care what anybody tells you. Hell is not you suffering under uh, demons uh, uh, doing some kind of torture to you, okay? That is not true. What is hell? What is going on in hell? What is the torture and the torment of hell? It is not demons because they will be tormented and tortured right alongside everyone else who's in hell. They're not down there in control of anything. Hell is you are facing the unbridled wrath of Almighty God forever. That's hell. You're facing the wrath of God. And this chapter tells us that the wrath of God rests on those who don't believe. It's already on them. That judgment's already there. Woo! That's why it's so important that you believe and come to faith in Christ. Amen. <laughs> come on. Also, we see in this chapter, uh, number six, we see John the Baptist again exalting Christ, bearing witness to Christ. He points to the Son as the one who gives eternal life. John in this chapter says, I must decrease and he must increase. John's final words were this. Uh, let's just read. I'll read the final words that John says. Uh, verse 34, for he who, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given him all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Remains. That means it's already there. Because the reality is outside of Christ, we all stand condemned. You're already on your way to hell. The train ticket is punched. You're not getting, you're not making a decision of, oh, I'm going to go to heaven or I'm going to hell. Your only decision you're making is, hey, I want to go to heaven. Because otherwise you're going to hell. That's reality. Amen? And without God's help to say, hey, Mike, wake up. Hey, Brian, wake up. Hey, Roberta, wake up. Without God doing that, you'd still be lost, dead in your trespasses and sin, and going to a devil's hell. But because of the grace of God, you're not. Now, verse uh, number seven I put in here, I, 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 it's very long, okay? Because I just wanted to tell you about some topics that we're going to discuss throughout the chapter three of John. Besides these plain surface level observations, we will divide or we will dive headlong into deep doctrines. And we talked about soteriology. Okay, soteriology simply means the study of salvation or the doctrine of salvation, okay, which is obviously what this chapter is about, amen? It, can, can we get any more plainly obvious than you must be born again, you must be born again, the Son gives eternal life, if you, if you believe you're not condemned, if you don't believe you are condemned, this is salvation, amen, the whole chapter. We're going to talk about regeneration, conversion, faith, justification, sanctification, common grace, election, and reprobation, the gospel call, effectual call, the adoptions of sons and daughters into Christ. We will learn and study terms such as rabbi, signs, born again, born of the spirit, the son of man, eternal life, and the Son of God. We will mine the depths of all these truths and unearth the gospel at every turn. So to begin, let us define a term that is truly at the heart of this chapter, and I want to define it for you, or uh, excuse me, define it for you. Soterology is from a Greek word, soteria, which means salvation. Okay, and ology is just simply the English word for the study of, right? Okay, and soterology also in the Greek, if you said that word, you'd be using logos, okay, which would be the study of the word of salvation, okay? So we got to put it in perspective. But this, the word soterology simply means the doctrine of salvation or simply the study of salvation. Merriam-Webster defines soteriology this way. Theology dealing with salvation especially as affected by Jesus Christ. Now if you guys haven't never actually read some definitions in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, I'm really surprised at all of the godly biblical definitions in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, okay? 
Like you go look up anything, salvation, in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and it'll blow your mind, okay? There's all kinds of good stuff in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and you don't even realize it's there. Most people who say, that soteriology, you just made that word up. Nope, it's a real word, and it's in the dictionary. Well, Man Webster was a Christian, okay? People don't realize that. that He wrote the dictionary, but he was a believer, okay? May not, I may not have agreed with all of his theology, but he was a believer, okay? Uh, Louis Burkhoff, and if you don't know who Louis, Louis Burkhoff is, he was a, a 19th century, early 20th century uh, theologian. Okay, and he wrote a systematic theology, and he defines soteriology this way. Soteriology deals with the communication of the blessings of salvation to the sinner and his restoration to divine favor and to a life in intimate communion with God. Is that not salvation? That is definitely salvation, amen? God communicating the blessing of salvation, okay? Salvation isn't something I do. Salvation isn't something I earn. Salvation isn't something I can even get on my own. Because the way that we preach the gospel nowadays, which is only half truth, okay? They act like there's just this fruit hanging on a tree that's just kind of out there. And any old body can just do it on their own. The problem is none of us can reach the fruit. The problem is none of us can get there without God's help. That's the truth of the gospel because the problem is we don't have a ladder high enough. We don't have a a, a stick long enough to reach the fruit of salvation on our own. God saves. Jesus saves. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Remember that song? There's a call comes ringing o'er the restless way. Send the light, send the light. Why is he sending the light? Because we're in darkness. I saw the light. People take credit. I saw it. Yeah, but if God wouldn't have turned the light on, you wouldn't have saw anything. Salvation does not originate with you. It originates with God every time. Every time. The doctrine of salvation is surely at the heart of this chapter, and we will seek to convey in some small way the riches of the vast wealth of this chapter for our own edification. I want to read a note on verse 1. We're going to read verse 1 again, and then we're going to read a little note on verse 1, okay? I'm going to actually get to my text now. Somebody say amen. Amen. Very first verse. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. I'm going to stop right there because there's a lot of information right here that we don't quite understand in our modern understanding of things. When he says a ruler of the Jews, what he's talking about 
is the ruling council of the Sanhedrin that was in control of all things in Jerusalem. They were the authority in spiritual and legal matters, and they executed justice. They pronounced sentences. By this time, though, Rome was in control of Jerusalem, so if they were going to put somebody to death, they had to go and ask to be able to execute people. Which is why the stone, when they, when they uh, sought to stone the woman out there in the middle of the street, they were already breaking Roman law because they were taking the matter into their own hands. Under Roman law, they had to be tried. Amen? They didn't take her to get tried, did they? They were just going to take her out in the middle of the street. And then they asked Jesus. This woman was caught in an act of adultery. What should we do? Law of Moses says we should stone her to death. What was Jesus' answer? Ye who are without sin, cast first stone, right? But him who's without sin, cast first stone. Problem is, none of us could have threw a stone. And if we did, we was a liar. Amen? So i got a note I want to read on this, but I have several that I'm just going to read through, and I want you to bear with me as I'm reading them. The story of Jesus and Nicodemus reinforces John's theme that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he came to offer salvation to men. John 2, 23 and 24. Actually, these verses serve as the introduction to Nicodemus. What verses is he talking about right here? I want to go back and read verse 22, or 23, excuse me. And 24 of chapter 2. I want you to remember these. 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about men for he himself knew what was in a man. Remember that? So now we have this son of God, this God in the flesh who knows all things about all men. Can I get an amen? How, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter how experienced you are, doesn't matter how sinful you are, doesn't matter how good you are at hiding your stuff, Jesus will lay it bare. Keep reading this note. Get myself on that rabbit trail and I won't get off. <laughs> John 2, 23 and 24 actually serves as an introduction to Nicodemus' story. Since chapter 3 constitutes as tangible evidence of Jesus' ability to know men's hearts. Thereby also demonstrate, demonstrating that Jesus is deity. Jesus also presented God's plan of salvation to Nicodemus, showing that, the, uh, showing that he was God's messenger whose redemptive work brings about the promised salvation to his people. How many of you remember Jesus' whole purpose for coming was to seek and to save that which is lost, right? Matter of fact, when the angel came to Joseph and said, you need to name his name Jesus, the, 
what, what did Matthew make sure we understood? That Jesus means God is salvation. Right? We also know that he said, for he will save his people from their sins. Amen? <clears throat> God's plan of salvation to Nicodemus showing that he was God's messenger whose redemptive work was bringing about the promised salvation of his people. The chapter may be divided into two sections, Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus and Jesus' discourse on God's plan of salvation. This section on Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus may be divided into three sections. Nicodemus' inquiry of Jesus, verse 1 through 3. Jesus' insight into who Nicodemus is, verses 4 through 8. And Jesus' indictment of Nicodemus, verse 9 and 10. Now, also I want to read you a note that says the word Pharisee most likely comes from the Hebrew word to separate. And therefore probably means separated ones. They were not separatists in the sense of isolationalists, but in, the Puritan, uh, in a Puritan sense. They were highly zealous for ritual and religious purity according to the Mosaic law as well as their own traditions that they added to the Old Testament legislation. Although their origin is unknown, they seem to have arisen as an offshoot from Hasidism and or the pious ones during the Maccabean era. They were generally from the Jewish middle class and mostly consisted of laity or businessmen rather than priests or Levites. They represented the orthodox core of Judaism and a very strong influence on the common people. According to Josephus, over 6,000 Pharisees existed at the time of Herod the Great. That's a lot of people ruling one little, well, Jerusalem wasn't little, okay? But that's a lot of people in any business's uh, board, right? We kind of put a limit on our board, you know? We're like, we don't want, you know, it, it, it would be kin to us having 30 people on the board and having 40 people come to church, <laughs> right? We don't need that, amen? Now, according to Josephus, 6,000 existed at the time of Herod the Great. Jesus condemned them for their hyper-concentration on external religion, rules, and regulations rather than inward spiritual transformation. Nicodemus, although Nicodemus was a Pharisee, his name was Greek in origin and meant victor over the people. He was a prominent Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jews. Nothing is known about his family background. He evidently or eventually comes to belief or faith in Christ in uh, John 7, 50 through 52, risking his own life and reputation by helping to give Jesus' body a decent burial in John 19, 38 through 42. Amen? So we see Nicodemus at Jesus' trial saying, you know, shouldn't we hear this man? Does he not deserve a trial, right? And then we see him coming to Jesus' burial at the end of the book of John. 
So even though Nicodemus in this chapter makes very little, uh, it doesn't look like he says, oh, I believe you're the Christ, right? We can't pull that out of this chapter. But we can infer it in the fact that later on he stands up for Jesus and then helps bury Christ. Amen. And church history teaches that Nicodemus did become a follower of Christ. Amen. All right. Let's get moving. I don't want to get stuck right there. According to uh, D.A. Carson, Pharisees or who the Pharisees were, they were religious leaders who were extremely scrupulous about attaining righteousness and keeping God's favor by observing every minute detail of his law as they understood it and by establishing an oral tradition about how to observe it. Now, does that sound like some people we know today that claim to be Christians and all they really do is focus on what you're going to do to get to God, what you're going to do to gain God's favor, what you're going to do to keep God's favor. Because half the time, the people that Kyle and I talk to, they'll freely admit that, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But then when you talk about how, how the, the Christian life is walked out, they do this. They'll go, well, you're saved by grace through faith, but if you start sinning later on, then you're, you're out. Except for one thing. I didn't earn my salvation in the first place. And it's not my job to maintain my salvation. God saves. God keeps. God makes us persevere. Amen? I'm not going to do anything to earn something I didn't earn in the first place. I'm not going to do anything to keep something that I didn't earn in the first place, that I didn't have the power to give myself in the first place. Amen? Now, am I saying that uh, people, once they get saved, they can just go live whatever way they want? Nope. You know what I call those people? Liars. I call them liars. I don't think they got what they think they got because a true born-again experience, when you're really saved, it changes you. Amen? The, the guy you were before, the woman you were before, is no longer there. You're something else. So I would agree with people that fruit, the fruit of salvation must be seen. Amen? For it to be genuine conversion. But that doesn't mean that they're the ones that are keeping their salvation. That means an actual change took place in them by the mighty hand of God who translated them from darkness into light, who by his power, by his spirit, changes them from glory to glory, even by the spirit of God. Amen. That's what Paul said. Paul didn't say, I'm ever changed from glory to glory because I'm maintaining my salvation. No. He doesn't say that. Amen? He said, I'm changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. Why? Because he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete that work. God doesn't not finish 
what he started. Amen? Where am I again? Where am I at again? I lost my place. Okay, here we go. Turn, I turned my page back. Nicodemus, Nicodemus obviously came to Christ to speak for those in the Sanhedrin. I want you to notice something. And this is something I missed for a long time. And I just got it the other day. Nicodemus didn't just come to Jesus wanting to talk to him by himself, for himself. Look what he says in verse 2. He says this in verse 2. Uh, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now listen to what he said. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Right? As soon as he said we, what that really meant was all of us over at the Sanhedrin, we want to know what you're up to. Right? You ever had somebody come and ask you something and they said we? And you're sitting there going, well, who the rest of you are? Right? Like, you're the only one here. Why isn't everybody else here talking to me? Right? Nicodemus came speaking to Christ at night. I want to finish reading a little bit of this. Uh, nothing is known about his background other than he was a ruler of the Jews. Uh, this reference is to the Sanhedrin, the main ruling body of the Jews in Israel during the Greco-Roman period. It was, Jew, it was the Jewish Supreme Court or ruling council of its time, and it arose most likely during the Persian period. In the New Testament times, the Sanhedrin was composed of high priests, the president, chief priests, elders, family heads, and scribes for a total of 71 people. The method of appointment was both hereditary and political. It executed both civil and criminal justice and jurisdiction according to Jewish law. However, capital punishment cases required the sanction of the Roman procurator. After AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin was abolished and replaced by Beth Din, a court of judgment that was composed of scribes whose decisions only had moral and religious authority. In other words, they ceased being public rulers. They couldn't rule on matters of civil cases, okay? Now, lastly, I want to say this. Why did Nicodemus come to him at night? Why in the world does Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? This is a big question, okay? Well, he didn't want to get seen coming there at night. He didn't want to get seen, right? Why? Why didn't he want to get seen? Because Jesus wasn't popular, right? It wasn't the end thing to be seen with Jesus. That's why some people see me at Walmart and go the other way. They're like, I don't want nobody seeing me with Kevin in public. I'm just playing. No, Jesus wasn't popular because he was preaching that what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin was doing was that they were straining at a net, swallowing camels. They would, <coughs> they would strain at the least little bitty thing in the law, but they would let other things that were more important go by. 
Don't we do that today? Do you know that today it's more a sin to call out sin than it is to actually do the sin? I get, I get looked at like I'm a Pharisee because I point somebody and point to somebody and say, hey man, what you're doing is wrong. Oh, you're judging me. No, the Bible judges you. Just like the Bible judges me, right? If you don't think the Bible judges you, just think about one sin that you did yesterday. You're standing in judgment according to the Bible. Problem is, those who are outside of Christ are going to face the wrath of God, and those inside of Christ are being forgiven. Come on now, I know this is hard preaching. We don't like this kind of preaching. We want Joel Osteen to make us feel good about all of ourselves. Pat us on the back and say, oh, you all are basically good people. No, you're not. And you know you're not. Amen? That's the reality. Most people who, who, who oh, just tell me I'm doing good, you know, and, and you ask them on the street corner. The problem is people get mad and say, you don't have to point out people's sins. They know they're a sinner. No, they don't. They think the pedophile on TV is a sinner. They think that murderer on TV is a sinner. But they don't think they're a sinner. They think that person's a sinner, but not me. And what Romans does for us is count us all equal. Amen? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 9 through 18. There's none that does righteousness. There's none that seeks after God. There's none. Problem is we don't want that. Why? Because we don't like the truth. And now we're in John 3, 19. This is the condemnation that come into the world. That men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Amen? This is a reality check. And Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. And he gets told this. Okay? Let that sink in for a minute. This man studied rabbinical teaching. He knew the law front and back and thought that he was doing everything he could do to obtain favor with God, to obtain righteousness with God because of his good works. All the while, Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Let that sink in. Nicodemus comes to speak to Jesus in the Sanhedrin. Uh, uh, for the Sanhedrin, he was a ruler of the Jews. This will be the first of several encounters that Jesus who knew what was in a man comes and has conversations with a variety of people. He has this with Nicodemus and then the Samaritan woman, right? Then the Gentile officer, then the man at the pool of Bethesda. All these instances highlight Jesus' knowing all that was in a man. Jesus came by night while some have thought Nicodemus' visit by night was somehow figurative of spiritual darkness or the spiritual darkness of his heart or that he decided to come because he could not take more time with Jesus 
or be hurried in conversation. Perhaps the most logical explanation lies in the fact that as a ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus was afraid of the implications of associating in conversation with Jesus. He chose night in order to have a uh, clandestine meeting with Jesus rather than risking disfavor with his fellow Pharisees, among whom Jesus was generally unpopular. Now, I believe both of them are true. I believe it shows Nicodemus' spiritual darkness. And I believe that Nicodemus saw a flicker of light over there. And like a moth to a flame, he went, what's that? Right? What would you do if you're locked away in the dark? For days and days and weeks and weeks and years and years and then all of a sudden light you'd immediately look at it and then if it was offered any hope of maybe seeing outside you would immediately go to it to find out what this was I think it is absolutely telling that Nicodemus came to him at night. I think it speaks of spiritual darkness because that's how we all come to Christ. We are all in the dark and alone without Christ. Nicodemus saw that little flicker. Amen? What did Moses say? He said, I behold a bush that was on fire, but was not consumed. What does the Bible record right there? And it said, Moses said, I will turn aside and go see this sight. Amen? Isn't that what you did? You saw that little flicker of light and said, let me go see this Jesus. And the very minute that you got in the presence of that flicker of light, that burning bush, you realized that you were in the presence of Almighty God. And it changed you forever. Moses was never the same man. Paul was never the same man. What did Paul see? He's on the road to Damascus and saw a blinding light. It was so blinding, it blinded him for three days. Amen? Came out glowing. People couldn't even look at Moses' face. They had to put a veil over his face. The ESV study Bible says coming from the teacher of Israel, which is what Nicodemus is called in John 3 and 10, the address as a rabbi, meaning teacher, denotes respect, especially since it was known that Jesus did not have formal rabbinic training. We know this from John 7:15. Nicodemus, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. 
John wrote this gospel so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, according to John chapter 20, verse 31. That you would know Jesus is God, according to John 1 and 1. Now this is the point that I want to make with you. How do I know Nicodemus was in spiritual darkness? Because Nicodemus didn't say, we know you're the Messiah. We know you're the Son of God. We know you're the Redeemer of Israel. No, he didn't say that. He said, we know that you're a teacher come from God and the whole world today. That's what they believed, that Jesus was just a teacher. That he was just a man. Muslims believed that he was just a prophet. Matter of fact, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he was just a prophet. Just a man. And that's where Nicodemus was trapped. We know you're a teacher come from God. No, you don't know what you think you know. Was he a teacher come from God? Most assuredly. But the problem is, he wasn't just a teacher come from God. He was God. And he was about to tell Nicodemus the same thing. Amen? Not just a teacher. Not just from God. But he is God. The redeemer and giver of eternal life. As we see in the last three verses of this chapter. The physical darkness was real. Nicodemus came at night so he would not be seen by his companions and compatriots in the Sanhedrin. But when he came at night, he also came in spiritual darkness. And it was plainly evident in that he just thought Jesus was a teacher. And at the understanding that he did not know what Jesus was talking about when he said, you must be born again. Amen? Lastly, I got one more note and then I'll close. <clears throat> born again. This phrase literally means born from above. And we can tie it to John 1. So if you will, just flip your Bible back to John 1. And we're going to read a verse that makes this very plain. John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now watch this. I want you to understand how hermeneutics is working here okay it says that all those who received him right and that would have said but to all who received him who believed in his name gave he the right to become children of God or the sons of God right that's what it says right and a lot of people will stop me right there and they'll say see that's where we choose God wrong because this verse is qualified by the very next verse. The very next verse says, Who were born not of blood, 
That means not of Jewish descent. Your, your ancestry, your heritage is not what's going to save you. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. That means there's nothing I could do to earn it. There's no way I'm going to do anything to obtain it. Nor of the will of man. It's not even going to be based on my decision. But of the will of God. That's what qualifies the born again experience. Because I cannot save myself. If it was just up to a decision. If it was just simply everybody just needed to choose to do right. Jesus wouldn't have had to die. If righteousness could be attained by just us simply keeping the law, then Christ did not have to come and die on a cross. But the problem is, we can't do it. So he had to come and die on a cross. And he had to come and save us because I was incapable of saving myself. That's the gospel. That the God who made man in his image and his likeness, who saw man's sin, made a plan and had a plan to redeem man back unto himself and not that that man was going to do it, but that God himself was going to save that man. So often we think too highly of ourselves, think too much of our own abilities, and really miss out on the fact that we're unable. Amen? In closing, Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus does not even have to ask. He reads Nicodemus's heart and came to the very core of his problem, the need of Spiritual transformation or regeneration produced by the Holy Spirit. New birth is an act of God whereby eternal life is imparted to the believer. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Titus 3, 5, 1 Peter 1, 3, 1 John 2, 29, 1 John 3, 9, 1 John 4, 7, 1 John 5, 1, 1 John 4, uh, 1 John 4, 18. I think I said that wrong. Okay. Let me give you right. 1 John 5, 1, 5, 4, and 5, 18. Excuse me. Make sure people at home are going to go, that's not in there. See, he lied to me. No, I just misquoted what I was reading, okay? You come read my notes for me. Sometimes I can't read my own chicken scratch, okay? Chapter 1, 12 Chapter uh, 113 indicates the born again also carries the idea to become children of God through trust in the name of the incarnate word. Now, I want to show you one thing as we close, because we're on verse 3, okay? Verse 3 says this. Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly. Now, in the book of John, every time this phrase Truly, truly. And in the King James, it says, verily, verily. Amen. And every time this phrase.
phrase is used, it's because the person that is being spoken to is walking in disbelief. And Jesus is using this as an emphatic saying, truly, truly, Nicodemus. Right? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is where I'm going to end. Because what we need to know is the born again experience. What we need to know is this born again experience. If I'm not born again, I can't even see the kingdom of God. Do you know why people can't see what you're talking? You ever said that to somebody? Can't you see what I'm talking about? No, they can't. They don't get it. Just like Nicodemus didn't get it. Nicodemus looked at him totally confused and said, how am I going to do that? Am I to go in my mother's womb and be born a second time? Do you see how he was trapped in earthly thoughts and in earthly things? And that's where many of the people who profess to be Christians are at today. You preach the gospel to them and it misses them by a mile. Yet they say they believe in Christ. Paul questioned people like that and said, you had the milk and I would that you would have moved on to meat, but you're still on milk. What's he saying? You're still not getting it. The reality is there's a qualification to get to heaven. There's a qualification to even see the kingdom. The very next time Jesus said this, he said, you're going to be born of water and of the spirit, or you can't even enter the kingdom of God. Do you see that spiritually being blind and coming in the dark and groping about in gross darkness, thinking that you're going to find your way to God by yourself is absolutely antithetical to what we're talking about right here because God didn't wait for Nicodemus. Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue and says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus could have been just like that rich young ruler and said, do you know, what, who, do you know who I am? I got all this money, never broken the law, never broken a commandment. Oh, really? Anytime somebody tells you they never sin, you can go ahead and write their name down on a prayer list because they're lying to you and they're walking in sin right then. The Bible says that if I say I have not sinned, I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. That's not my words. That's, that's John, right? Same John that wrote this gospel calls any man who says they have no sin a liar. Try to stand that up. Stand up and just call your people liars when you're a pastor nowadays, okay? You're a liar! You're a liar! No, can't do that, right? That's why their gospel wasn't so popular. Matter of fact, if you're preaching and your preaching is totally popular, I'm worried that you may not be preaching the gospel. Because the gospel is offensive. The gospel makes people look at their self and where they're at. And who they are. And it makes them see their self for who they really are. And for who God really is. 
Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. What does that mean, the wages of sin? The wa what is the wage? How many of you got a job? You got a job? Mike's got a job. Mike, I'm not going to ask you how much money you make, but a wage is you agree to your boss. You say, you pay me this much money, and I'm going to come work this many hours, right? And what do you get at the end of the week? You get a paycheck. That's your wages. You earned those. Do you know what every one of us can earn for ourselves? Wages of death because we're sinners. We can't earn salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 says, By grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why? Because I can't do it. Romans says I'm incapable. Finally, Romans 10, 8 through 13 says, If I believe in my heart, confess with my mouth. Amen? Let's, let's go to Romans. I want to read this. Read this with me, okay? We're going to close with this verse. Romans 8, verse, or Romans 10, excuse me. Romans 10, verse 8. Romans 10, verse 8. <clears throat> Says right here. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what I tell, to, you know what I tell a lot of my Calvinist friends who really get off on the the whole election thing. The problem is you don't know whosoever will. And I don't know whosoever will. So I can't preach a gospel that says only you can come and only you can come and only you can come. The gospel is made proclamated to everyone because I don't know who will believe. But everyone who does believe. Everyone who does call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. It says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not for me to tell you, oh, you can't do it. And, oh, you can't do it. And, oh, you can't do it. Nope. I don't know any of you, and I don't know your hearts, so I tell you, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Come! And I let God do the rest. That's how we preach the gospel. We make the proclamation, whosoever will, let him come.
Only those who will, will. Amen. Come on. Let's preach the gospel. That's what Nicodemus is fixing to get, right? And we just went through the first line. Slap your neighbor on the shoulder and tell him we made it through three verses. We made it through three verses. Next week, we might make it through three more. Amen? But the reality is, this chapter is the gospel over and over and over. Everything Jesus says is about winning a soul. Amen? That's what we need to be doing. Everything we say, everything we do ought to be to shine the light of Christ. I stood at these funerals over the last few weeks, after this last week, and every one of them I stood at, I made sure I told them, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. So I got to tell you that God loves you. God wants you to be part of his family. That we're all sinners, that we all need salvation, and that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen? You have to do it. We need to be a church that is focused on preaching the gospel. Not just me, us. You've got to do it in your own way, to your own people, to those I'll never see you got to be the one saying, God loves you. God wants you to know his son. God has made provision of salvation that you, amen? amen. You notice Jesus never once just said, hey, I'm not going to tell you the gospel because you're not going anyway. <laughs> right? He never done that, Right? Now, he told the Pharisees, you don't understand because you're not of my sheep. But he still told them the gospel. Amen. That's what we need to do. We need to tell the gospel to every, every man, woman, and child. We need to raise our children reading the Bible, teaching the Bible, singing the Bible, living the Bible, preaching the gospel. Amen. Stand with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are, you are so faithful in your word to show us your son, to show us the plan of salvation, to show us our need for you. And I pray, Lord, that anybody that's watching this live stream today that's going to listen to this podcast later on, God, that they would come to know Jesus Christ, that they would come to saving faith, Lord, that, the, that you would turn to them and let the light of the gospel shine on their heart. Let your spirit, let your word wash over them, call to them, draw them to yourself. Let them see the light and let them have faith in you, Lord. Let them turn to you in faith, repent and believe the gospel that they may be saved, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who are in this room who do know you, that are living our lives for you, God, that you would continually, that you would continue to mold us and shape us into the image of your son, that we might, with all of the saints, come to comprehend the beauty, the height and the depth and the length of the breadth of the gospel, 
and see many, many more people come to faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.